Jesus and his disciples entered a town called Caesarea Philippi. It was at the foothills of Mount Hebron and only about 25 miles from the other Jewish towns of Galilee. But Caesarea Philippi was completely different. Instead, this town was full of pagan worship and idols, mainly to the Greek god Pan. Pagan worship goes back to the Old Testament times where King Jeroboam built high places in this region. Whenever Herod Philippi took over this region later, he named the city after himself. Now, pagans practiced many detestable rituals in their temple, which was set up right in front of this huge, bottomless cave. In their pagan religion, they believed that the gods slept here during the winter, and then whenever the spring water came, they actually came out of this cave. And so it was this gate, it was this entrance to the underworld, in which they called Hades. For Jesus and his followers to be in this town must have felt a little bit awkward. After all, what are they doing in this red light district? So in this setting then of religious pluralism, Jesus asks his followers, who do people say that he is? And then more importantly, well, who do they say that he is? Peter responds that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says that on this rock, he will build his church and that nothing can overcome the church, not even the gates of hell. The gates of hell. Remember the cave? The gate to the underworld? It's possible that Jesus was standing right there at the pagan temple in front of what they thought to be the gate to hell. And he said that not even the gates of hell will prevail. And that no amount of evil can win. It's a charge to not hide from evil, but rather to literally storm the gates of hell. So there you go. A little bit about Caesarea Philippi, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let's open in prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight. It's, it's hot outside, and so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in a way that refreshes us tonight. That you would refresh us through this knowledge that you are always with us, that you care about us desperately, that you've made so many promises, Lord, as we walk through life to remind us that you are there, that you've got us, that you've got our situation, that you will work all things for the good of those who love you. Father, as we go through life, it gets hard sometimes, and it gets complicated sometimes, and there's areas of our life that we stress and we worry about. Tonight, we pray that you would put that into focus and help us just trust you with more and more and more in our life, that more and more of us could just give ourselves over to you, that we might find that peace that you talk about, that strength and that hope. We pray that tonight in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So we're picking up in Matthew 15, beginning with verse 29. And I'll just begin. Jesus went on from there and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee and he went up to a mountain and sat down there. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame and the blind, the crippled and the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered, wondered when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified this God of Israel. Just as a backdrop, he had gone into regions of Samaria, right? Just preaching and teaching and, and doing miracles. And we saw some of those last week. And today he's just sitting in the, the, all by himself when people just are coming out of the woodwork, bringing to him people to heal. Again, I, I invite you to think of some guy that could just heal anything. Think about some, whatever you're struggling with. Think about some illnesses in your family. Think about the things that the doctors can't quite figure out. And there was this guy, he's this guy, Jesus, that could heal everything. And if you think about just life as it comes, there's sometimes there's people that find out they get cancer. There's people that find out they have all sorts of different things and they start worrying and they start stressing. Imagine there was this guy, even if you had to walk 15, 20 miles to see him. Imagine there's this guy that could heal stuff. 
And people came to him in droves. They wanted to see if this Jesus would heal them. And he makes an impact on this region. And then Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. I want you to think about the impact of that time with Jesus. He was healing people. People all of a sudden could speak when before they couldn't. All of a sudden, he was healing them. Diseases that they, they didn't have. Lame people were walking. All sorts of different things. And then he would teach them and talk to them about the kingdom. For three days, they stayed there. Even though they didn't bring enough lunch except for the first day. For three days, they were there watching Jesus do these incredible things. He says, I have compassion on them and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Now it's interesting, we just saw an example of Jesus feeding 5,000, 15,000 people already with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. They'd already seen the miracle. They'd already picked up the basketfuls. They'd seen God do this amazing thing for the Jews. But they were in a Gentile region. And Jesus started talking like he was going to do as he did before. He started asking if they had enough money or they had enough resources to feed the people. They, of course, did not. But it seems like when he said, how many loaves do you have, that that would have triggered something that just maybe Jesus was going to do another miracle. They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves of fish and having given thanks, he broke them and he gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven basketfuls full of broken pieces that were left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now again, you have to put your mind in, this, in, the, in the eyes and the ears and the head of the disciples. They had seen this miracle before. And yet somehow it didn't register. Somehow what they were doing, somehow what they were experiencing was, was somehow lost just a little bit on them. The crowd saw it to be a miracle. The crowd saw it to be a, one of the signs of the Messiah. He was feeding people like when Moses fed the people manna was one of the messianic prophecies. This was telling everybody that he was the guy. There's some commentators that think because they were in Gentile regions, they just didn't imagine that Jesus would do it for them. But it's the same kind of situation same kind of circumstances. And the disciples, again, just weren't able to go and just trust. They weren't able to go to Jesus and say, why don't you do that miracle thing again and feed everybody? They were, again, caught off guards. And even with the seven basketfuls that they picked up afterwards, it seemed that it still didn't register. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. So he's going back into um, Israel nation here. He's going back in, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to see him. Two of the, the biggest powers in Israel at the time. It was kind of an unholy alliance. They disagreed about a great many things. The Sadducees believed in the first five books of the Bible. The, the Pharisees believed in not just that, but the, the prophecies, the Psalter, all those different things. This, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees struggled with that and did not believe in that. And so there's a lot of controversy, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of arguments between these two groups, and yet both of them come together to test Jesus. I was trying to think of an example of that, of where two kind of people on the opposite sides would come together and kind of form an unholy alliance to go against somebody. Well, there's Democrats and there's Republicans. Imagine there was a third rail, right, a third party that would decide, hey, we want to start up. You could see that both the Republicans and the Democrats would look at that as a threat. 
they're going to take away a huge part of our base. They, they could be fearful about what this third party would accomplish. And you could see both of them working against this third party to make sure that it never got off the ground, that it was never a threat to anybody. That's the best I got. I was trying to think of an example where two opposite people would come together. Or we talked about this last week. How could somebody who is secularly liberal, believing in transgender and homosexuality and women's rights, that's not so crazy, um, and all these different kinds of things, yoke themselves with Muslims who are about minimal rights for women, who are anti-homosexuality, anti-transgender, and we actually want to destroy many of the things that the liberal elite or liberal, um, secularly liberal people would hold to. How in the world can you see them come together in a culture where that doesn't make sense, where they're polar opposites, unless there's a common, a common foe, the enemy of my enemy is, is my friend, right? There's a common foe that they're working against. And so you have these two groups, both believing in God, by the way, so maybe politics is a better example. They came together to test Jesus because he was that third rail that was threatening things, threatening to upset the apple cart, threatening their power base, threatening all sorts of, of uh, kind of they were worried about inciting a rebellion that would, Rome would have to put down. They were afraid of losing their power. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will, I'm sorry, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And then he answered them. Now, this wasn't the first time Jesus had been asked to show us a sign from heaven. In chapter 12, people said, show us a sign from heaven. I mean, and Jesus said, I just did all these things. Why are these not good enough, right? And I'll give you no other sign except the sign of Jonah. I need you to believe. I need you to trust. Yet the Pharisees came to test him because they knew he, he had already said that he wouldn't do that. They knew that once he said he wouldn't do a miracle, that they could say, see, he's not who he says he is. And so he answers them. When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the son of Je sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, it's an interesting thing, this, this request for a sign. But just imagine today if somebody came and claimed to be Jesus. Wouldn't you want some sort of authentication to say you are who you say you are? It's not so crazy that someone would ask for a sign. If you are the Messiah, show yourself. What's crazy is they diminished all the healings that he had done. That they diminished his teaching. That they diminished the stories that he walked on water or that, or that he made the storm still. It, what's crazy is that when he raised a dead man, there were still people who were so hard of heart that they couldn't see it's not so crazy that people request for a sign. It's not one of those things that is brought out of a faithful heart or a believing heart. But you can understand why a generation, why our culture would try to ask for a sign. And so they did. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves and saying, we brought no bread. Jesus is talking about the bread again. We brought no bread. We're going to get in trouble. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Why would he say, Oh, you of little faith, when he's talking about bread? Jesus had just shown twice that, it, Don't worry about where we're going to find food, guys. I can create food out of nothing. Do you trust me to do that? 
And, and, you know, when we talk about faith, it's about trust. Do you trust God in more and more areas of your life? If you do, you find peace. Jesus had been with them twice, shown them examples of the fact, don't worry about the food. Life is more important than food. And here the disciples are still thinking he's, he's kind of caught up in the immediate stuff. As we walk through life, don't we get caught up in the immediate too? Where are we going to get enough money to pay this, this air conditioning bill? Where are we going to get enough money for the, to pay the kids' college tuition? Where are we going to get enough money to get a down payment for our house? And we're always consumed by the immediate, so much so that we stress, we have anxiety, and we worry. And yet over and over in Scripture, God says, don't worry about tomorrow. It's not an abdication where we can do nothing and we don't have to do anything at all. It means you do what you can do and trust me for the rest. But we are so guilty of getting caught up in the immediate, so much so that we, we forget about God, that we forget about his priority in our life. We stop living for heaven and we start living for today. We stop remembering that heaven is our goal and we make our retirement our goal or our vacation our goal. And as a result, we can go weeks, we can go months without spending time with him in his word, without praying thinking that we've got it all under control because we've lost perspective, we've lost priority because we get distracted by the present. Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the teachings that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. It was leading a whole country, trying to lead them astray from, from believing in Jesus, putting their faith and trust in the Messiah, putting their trust and faith in one that would lead them to heaven. And whatever their reasons were, whether it was, it was sheer um, envy because of the things that Jesus was accomplishing, or it was fear of a loss of position, which would be pride and, and, and self-interest, or, or just the fact that he didn't answer the way he, they wanted him to, and he wasn't one of them, and thus he posed a threat. There's a million and one things that kind of wrapped into this Pharisee's distrust and frustration and, and ultimately just hatred of Jesus. But it all wrapped in and they stopped seeing at all and they were trying to lead as many people as they could astray. In fact, if you confessed Jesus as Christ, you were kicked out of the church, out of the synagogue. And so they even laid heavy burdens on these people to say, you can't trust this guy, you can't believe this guy. And they were going all around Israel trying to make that point. They then understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So he just come off... <laughs> This experience with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two of the ruling parties of Israel, the scribes would be the third, and they confessed as a whole that they did not believe him to be the Christ. In coming off that experience, he goes to his disciples alone, and Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am, or the Son of Man is? And they said, some said John the Baptist, Herod thought he'd come back from the dead, right? Some were saying that. Others said, Elijah, Elijah must come before the Messiah comes. He'll be one that will prepare the way. He'll be one that, that, that will um, prophesy to his return. He will turn people's hearts back, right, to their children, all those different things. Some said Jeremiah as a prophet of, of judgment, Remember, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All these teachings that Jesus gave about believe and, and follow me and find life, reject me and find hell. And so some were seeing in him a prophet of Jeremiah or some of the other prophets. 
He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And so God gave Peter a revelation. I mean, you have to imagine he heard God speak to it a couple times, right? That Jesus was the Messiah, or he would at once and he would again shortly. But Peter believed that Jesus was who he said he was. He walked on water, for heaven's sakes. He'd seen Jesus still storms. He had seen Jesus feed thousands. He had seen Jesus heal people. He was blown away by the teachings of Scripture because it came alive, and he understood for the first time what God was saying. And God revealed to Peter that he was the one. And I tell you, you are Peter, the And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A lot of different discussion on this particular verse. And I think the simple reading just says that on the faith of Peter, I'll be the church. I'll build the church. That Peter's confession was the confession that Jesus was Christ. That upon that confession of faith, he would build the church, and others would come to it and cling around it and join it. The Catholics use that as, a, as an example to say, give the primacy of Peter, and eventually the, they link that to the papacy and give a kind of a scriptural presentation of the papacy. Of course, it doesn't quite give that here. And then he goes on and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you build on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This binding and loosing, there were pharisaical terms, there were pronouncements. If the Pharisees bound something, it was foreboden, and if they loosed something, it was okay, you could do it. And so he was using that terminology, and he was saying, I'm giving you two keys to the church, to Peter, to the church. One is to forgive, and one is to not forgive. We'll talk about that in just a second. So right after he's being attacked by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ruling party of the church at that time, trying to trip him up, trying to expose him as one who's just a charlatan, as one who's not the Messiah, his inner circle confesses him as Christ. First with Peter and then the others follow suit. They had seen, they had heard, and now they were already profess him as the Christ, the Messiah of all. There's still probably some misunderstanding. We'll see that in a little bit. Peter's, uh, when he says Christ, is still, he had in his mind something about him ruling, right? Something about him having an earthly kingdom. He didn't, in his mind yet, he couldn't grasp hold of the fact that he was a suffering servant. That had not been revealed to him yet. But he was convinced that he was the Son of God. He was convinced that this was the Messiah that was to come And he confessed that with all his heart. These keys of the kingdom that he gives us, it's one of the, we call them the the keys of the kingdom. It's, It's something given to the church at large. And they are simply the key to forgive and to heal. And they are the key to not forgive and to withhold grace from. And these are two very important things. They're law and they're gospel. They're things that are so important in the church. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of of why they're important. And then that it's important that we use them at the right times. There was a girl at my first church, uh, it was on Vicarage, and she had just committed, uh, had an abortion. And she was in the, the chapel and she was weeping. She was so grieved over what she had done. All the guilt in the world had been poured upon her. And she was weeping in the chapel, which was really an unusual experience for her to do that. So I, I was walking by, I saw her and I went in and I said, what's wrong? She said, I just committed some sin that was so horrible, not even God can forgive. 
I said, what did you do? She said, I just had an abortion. And she started crying more and more and more. And we talked about God's grace, and we talked about the fact that he does know what it is to give up a child, albeit for a different reason, to save her and not just for selfish motives. But, but he does understand, he does care, and there's no sin that can out-sin his grace. And so I shared with her grace at that moment why. Because she had already been convicted by the law. The last thing in the world you would do to someone convicted by sin is continue to pile it on. Say, you sinner, how dare you? How could you possibly do such a thing? It would have driven her down further and further and further until it would be very difficult to hear God's grace any longer. Because all you've done is pile on, and sin destroys when you pile on. And so when you come across somebody who's repentant, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, repentant for their sin, grieved over what they have not, not over getting caught, right, but grieved over what they have done, you share with them that God loves them. You share with them that because of Jesus, they're forgiven. You share with them that there's no sin that can out his grace and that there's a way forward and that he'll be with you every step and that he'll give you second and third and fourth chances, that there's a way forward from this place to your future. I'll give you another example. There's a lady in my last congregation. She had committed a sin. I won't go into what it was, but she had asked for forgiveness from God maybe a thousand times, and she couldn't quite, she couldn't quite receive that forgiveness. We had talked about God's grace, his love, the certainty of that forgiveness in the past. But day after day and year after year, she just refused to receive that forgiveness to that lady, ultimately, you give law. Why? Because she's despising, she's rejecting the grace of God. She's despising Jesus' death on the cross. She's saying it's not good enough. It's not sufficient enough. It's not powerful enough to take away my sin. And so instead of giving grace when it's not being heard anymore, you had to give law to say, what are you doing despising Jesus' gift to you? hating him for what he accomplished on the cross, pretending that it's not sufficient enough for your particular sin. How narcissistic of you, how full of yourself you are to think that this sin is the one sin he can't forgive. And she needed to hear law so that she could break down and receive the forgiveness that Christ won for us. These keys of the kingdom aren't like something that goes to a cool Ferrari, right? They're just, there's something that gives life and there's something that breaks down so that they can receive life. There's an example in the church sometimes, though, when, when people don't, you, you have to give them that, that difficult key, that you have to give them the law, and they say, no way, I'm not, I'm not sorry. And they call it excommunication, and, and that's when, if somebody's not sorry for their sin, and you've given them the law, and they're still not sorry for their sin, God says you turn them over to Satan for a period of time, 1 Corinthians, and you let him deal with them, hoping that now Satan would break them, Right? that he would break their spirit, that he would break their, 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 their pride, that he would humble them to the place where they would seek repentance from God, be forgiven and healed. These keys are not playthings. They're really, really important. And it's important that you give the right one to the right person at the right time because they are talking about eternity. And the reason you use both of them is to give people to eternity, not to condemn them to hell, Right? You use grace to say, go to, go to, get forgiven, go to heaven. We want you to heaven with us. Please be forgiven. We, Jesus won for you this, all this on the cross. We love you so much. And you use law to say, you need to repent 
What was John the Baptist's message? It was so popular when he came. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is coming, this guy, and he's going to lay waste. He's going to judge everybody. People are going to hell. He's going to judge with fire. I mean, you've got to repent. You've got to turn back to the Lord. Think about 1999. There was talk about, you know, Jesus coming then, and, you know, nobody paid attention. But the reality is, people thought about it, at least for an instant. And there was this idea of, I need to get my life better. I need to get my life right before he comes. If you found out he was coming Tuesday, what would you do? Would you go live it up with every sin that you could? Or would you spend the next few days on your knees praying, God, forgive me? And then would you spend then maybe the next, the next few hours after that going to everybody you know saying, you need to know Jesus. I want you in heaven with me. I, I want you to be with me. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so these keys that he gives the church are what's allowed God to work powerfully in the midst of 2,000 plus years. It's what's changed hearts. It's what's turned people around. It's what's given people hope. It's what's changed the world. He then goes on and says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? Because that was the charge that that mock court strung him up on. And if, if he had gone a little bit early, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish all that he had to accomplish before that time. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. So here's a very crucial thing. I think as we go through this, we pass over this a little bit, but Jesus here begins to define for the disciples what the Christ actually must do. In their heads, what were they thinking? I want to sit on his right and left hand. I want to rule in this kingdom. I can't wait until we overthrow Rome. This is going to be awesome. And Jesus starts talking about the fact that before the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, he's going to have to suffer many things, that he's going to be killed. And then he says this cryptic thing that on the third day, he's going to be raised. Peter didn't want to accept it. He confessed him as Christ just a little bit earlier, didn't he? You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And Jesus starts defining what the Messiah must do, and he's, he's freaking out. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, Peter's saying, God, for, God forbid this would ever happen. Stop talking like this, Jesus. And Jesus responds to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter was way more concerned about Jesus' well-being than he was about the salvation of everybody on earth. He was way more interested in the well-being of Jesus than he was the Messiah accomplishing the purpose for which he came. And I think we do that all the time. We get way more concerned about our family than sometimes doing the right thing. Or way more concerned about our friends' happiness, at least so-called happiness, than giving them tough love or tough truths try to turn them from certain calamity. We get way more interested in the temporal and we forget about the eternal. I was talking to a group of people about sharing your faith with people and, and, and I see a question here and I'll get to it in a sec. Um, about sharing your faith with a group of people and if you truly understood and, and believed in heaven and hell and in eternity in heaven and eternity in hell and you realize that life is but a, a blip on that screen. This is life and the rest is eternity then for people that you cared about, at least, it seems like you'd do everything and anything to try to bring them to Jesus. 
my grandma, she was awesome. She was not the most tactful woman, especially as she got older, okay? But, but she prayed for my aunt for 30 years, and she was unabashed by it. She sent her portals of prayer, like, I don't know, every month. She sent her articles that she found. She'd be praying for her. She'd talk to her about it when she called. I mean, and my aunt, you just had to imagine, it was, she would go, just like, I, I don't know if I want to talk to mom today. You know, she, she just, it just was inundated for 30 years. And then one day, my aunt met a friend that brought her to Christ. At that moment, do you think my grandma felt vindicated? At that moment, do you think my aunt understood why grandma kept doing what she did? I think so many people aren't willing to risk anything in this life to make sure to secure an eternity with people in their lives. They say, well, I'll take the 20, 30, 40 more years I have with them here, but I'll just kind of wave at them as they're sailing that Titanic to hell. We get so freaked out that we're going to lose our relationship here that we don't, we don't think about or we don't care about the eternity that we'll be without them. If there's anything that should motivate you to share Jesus, it's that reality. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about the only thing ultimately that matters. And I want to encourage you to think about the people in your life that you care about in such terms. Now, if they're not hearing you, stop talking, right? But but pray for opportunities and pray for words and, and pray that God uses the stuff that you say, whether it's incoherent or coherent or brilliant even, that somehow he uses the stuff you say to plant the seeds that will be necessary for them coming to faith. And then don't underestimate the power of prayer. 30 years is a long time to pray for something. Most of us give up way before that. But if we truly believe in heaven and hell, we truly believe that Jesus is the way, the only way then let that motivate us to start sharing Jesus with people. And if you don't know what to say, bring them to church. I'll talk to them, right? I mean, we got sermons twice a day I've been going on here. It, just bring them. It, we'd love to have them here. I'd love to sit down and visit with them. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, a temptation to Jesus. Whenever somebody cares more about you than the greater mission at hand, it's flattering. You understand their care. It's a temptation to quit doing something that you know is important. So get behind me, Satan. Just moments earlier, he confessed something only on the power of God, that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Here, he says something only motivated by Satan himself, providing a temptation to Christ. For you're not setting your, your mind on things of God, but on the things of men. And so this rock that Peter was to be as a stability for the church, he was now using as a stumbling block for Christ. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Again, Jesus puts this in very blunt terms. This cross isn't this pretty thing behind me that we go, oh, that's so, well, yeah, pretty or whatever. Or we see different crosses and we're, we're kind of get ooey-gooey's about Jesus. The cross was a means of crucifixion. It was a means of capital punishment. It did not give any ooey-gooey's to any of these disciples for him to use the term cross. It was an execution method. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, deny his life, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, choose his life over me, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 
So just if you think I was making all this heightened rhetoric up about heaven and hell, Jesus himself says, if you're not ready to give up everything for me, you could lose it all. Stop it. Follow me. I've got you. I've got your situations. I've got everything in store for you. It's all yours. Don't give up too soon. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so confessing Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God, means that you get that he's the only way to heaven. It means that you understand that's the only thing worth living for, worth dying for. I love the phrase, if you don't have anything worth dying for, you don't have anything worth living for, right? That that's our ultimate goal. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy other things. It just means that that's got to be our ultimate goal. And then when push comes to shove, we choose Jesus. And that when we don't understand some of his commands or some of his ways, we still follow trusting that he's got us, that he knows what's best, that he put them down for a reason that we subject ourselves and our wills and our life to Christ, that's pretty unpopular in America today. It's pretty countercultural in a me society that says everything should be about me. But we lose ourselves when we think it's about me instead of about Christ. We take things way too seriously about ourselves. We get offended way too easily. We blow up things that are not that, that big a deal. We worry about tons and tons of stuff instead of focusing on Jesus and trusting him who's got us. And Jesus told us to sigh. Oh, I read that, okay. And after six days, Jesus took, him, took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up to the high mountain by himself. And he was transfigured, transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white like as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. There's various um, ideas of why those two showed up. Um, some believe that they were to show up before the Messiah, Elijah especially, uh, Moses' lawgiver. Um, and perhaps that was it, or perhaps they were just there to comfort Jesus for the, the road that he would have before him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, if, if it is good that we are here, I wish it... I will make you three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He's speaking kind of out of his mind. He's just so blown away that he's seeing Moses and Elijah and that he somehow knows who they are. He wants to be hospitable somehow. So he says, let me make some temporary shelters. I'd love to do that for you. He was speaking when, behold, a, light, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's the second time in Peter's life that he had heard a voice from heaven named Jesus as his son. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. We, again, we were having a discussion in a different Bible study about fear. There is no fear in Christ, right? Fear does not come from God. And so when we are afraid, it means we're not trusting our Lord. We're not trusting that he's got us. We're not trusting that he's still working all things for our good. We're not trusting that he's the most powerful entity in our universe. We're simply not trusting. Because every time in scripture you see God come or his angels come or, or, or Jesus come, every time they have to say, fear not. Don't be afraid. 
And as soon as they say that, the fear dissipates because God is with them. Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And and we'll pick up next week with the rest of this. It's a little bit more lengthy. But one of the things I want to leave you with, well, let me get to this question. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is Jesus going into the grave for three days and then rising again. Talks about that in Mark. The Jonah was in a fish for three days and then was spit up on the land, probably 500 miles from Nineveh, but on the land so that he could go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites to share with them a different way, to share with them a message of repentance so that they would repent and the Lord would spare their city. And so when he talks about the sign of Jonah, he actually gives them the biggest miracle that he did of all. He said, you're going to kill me. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful message to our world. It's one that they're struggling to hear right now. So let us pray. Father, we love you so much. And we just pray, Lord, as you talked about heaven and hell, I pray, number one, Lord, that more and more in our life, can we start playing for an audience of one, for you, Lord, that would remember that, that heaven is our goal, it's our destination. Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul talked about is running a race to be there with you, of fighting a good fight, of accomplishing that and finishing and receiving his reward, his goal. The disciples gave up their lives trying to share with other people so that they could come to Father, more and more, give us a perspective of that and let us get less caught up in the world around us. And some of the, I don't know, the lesser frustrations and worries and anxieties that we have. And let us focus on you. Enhance our trust, enhance our faith in you so that we can trust you with more and more things in our life. Because in that trust, we find peace and we find an absence of fear. We find strength. We certainly find forgiveness. And we find a hope for tomorrow that is more strong than anything that we're worried about today. And then, Father, let that reality speak to us in such ways that, that we are burdened for those that we care about us around us. And there's some people that have rejected you, and to talk about them about such things is really hard. And so, Father, I just pray that we would commit tonight to pray for an opportunity to talk to him about you. And that you would provide that opportunity to us. You promise that you hear us, and this is certainly in your will. And so we pray for opportunities to talk to our loved ones, for words to share. And no matter what we share, that you would remind us that it's not up to us, but it's up to you to bring someone to faith. All you've called us to do is open our mouths. Father, let that be our burden, and let that be a reminder of your grace tonight. And we pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.